This morning we're going to share Mark 16, verses 9 through 13. And now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told, uh, told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving these words for us to help us uh, to see you more clearly, to know you more deeply, to find relationship with a God who pursues us in spite of our doubts, in spite of our unbelief, in spite of the, the troubles that we see in life, you pursue us. You are closer than a brother. You're as close as our actual breath. May your breath be breathed upon us today. Illuminate these words to us. Use the limitations of my words, of my understanding, to speak to the hearts and minds of the men and women who are hearing these words. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the first services I went to with my mom uh, happened to be my dad's first service as a student pastor in a little town called Carrollton, Georgia. And my dad was a brand new pastor. In fact, he wasn't even fully ordained yet. This was such a desperate church and such desperate need. They said, just give us anybody. And they got my dad. Now, my mom was a daughter of a pastor. She spent her whole life in the fishbowl that is being a preacher's kid. And now, for the first time, she got to experience what it was like to be a preacher's wife and the mom of a preacher's kid. I was maybe 16 months old, and there, of course, was no nursery. There was no child care. I got to sit on that uncomfortable pew on the front row with my mom. And you can just imagine what it would be like to have the pressure whether anyone else was thinking it or not, she felt like she had to act a certain way, and she felt like, in spite of the fact that I was 18 months old, I needed to behave a certain way, and sure enough, I did. I was the perfect little 18-month-old baby through all the standing up and sitting down, all the hymns, and then my dad got up to preach his first sermon at this church. I was just sitting there with my mom, holding her hand, all of a sudden, I decided to use all eight of my teeth and bite her finger as hard as I possibly could. Without even thinking about who she was, where she was, what was happening, she reached over with her other hand, whoosh, slapped me across the face. We both exited down the center row crying and in tears. The pain of being in a church community and the doubts, the self-doubt that comes as a part of it. 
The last time I was in a church service with my mom happened this past September. My parents spent almost five decades in the ministry in little rural South Georgia towns. My dad was a local church pastor. He knew farmers, he knew fishermen, he knew everybody in between. And they finally got the house that they wanted. They finally got to live on the beach. St. Simons, Georgia, a little island on the coast of Georgia. Georgia does have a little bit of coast if you look it up. It's actually there. So they got to finally live in their dream home. Uh, It's just this little humble home right there in St. Simons. My family, my wife and my kids and I visited back in July of this last year, and I've never seen my mom so happy. My parents were so excited about the future. My dad, at 76 years old, was still a full-time pastor. He was more excited about ministry than ever before, and so was my mom. Three months later, my mom got covid And the service, the last service I had was her funeral. Dashed hopes and dreams. I had the opportunity to stand and do her eulogy. And it was one of the greatest honors of my life. To stand and represent this life dedicated to Jesus this life of someone so dedicated to Jesus, there's nothing she wouldn't do. And to stand in front of family and friends and remember, memorialize this life. And there were people that said nice things about the eulogy, and mostly they just said, how did you keep it together? And I don't know how you were able to do it. But the truth is, the way I was able to do it was I looked over and I saw the strength in my dad. 50 years of marriage, and yet he lost the love of his life. How was he not full of doubt at the goodness of God? How did he look at death and not quake? You see, there's nothing quite like the death of a loved one to make you question everything. There's nothing quite like death to make you question everything about life. What does a follower of Jesus do with doubt? I stayed a week after the memorial service to be with my dad, and we walked the beach together, the same beach that he would walk with my mom, and I saw my dad grappling with doubt. I saw the humanity of my dad. I saw the fact that he was honest about his doubts. This many years in ministry, this many years as a pastor, and yet he still, though was full of faith, still had to wrestle with doubts. What does a follower of Jesus do with doubt? What is the reality of belief. Said another way, what is the reality of faith? So in our time together, a short time together, I just want to 
consider three ideas that we see through the pages of Scripture and in light of today's text around this idea of the juxtaposition of faith and doubt. The first idea is this. Faith is not the absence of doubt. I think this is a common misconception of the people of faith, uh, and that is that we never doubt. That maybe if, if you are not following Jesus or you're, you're outside the Christian faith and you're looking in and you just think Christian people have this way of putting on the blinders to reality. You feel like maybe we um, just simply ignore our doubts. It's kind of like this, this optimism that we have in spite of everything that's happening. And that's simply not true, or at least that's not the picture that we see in Scripture. Did you notice that twice... At the end of the Gospel of Mark, these verses that Greg and Shelley read, did you notice that twice it says that people did not believe? Well, who were these people? Was this the scribes and the Pharisees? Was this the Sanhedrin? Was this the Romans? Who were the people that were not believing in the resurrection? It wasn't people that were skeptical. It was people that should most have believed. The people that were the most faithful to follow Jesus. People that had seen miracles. People that had seen him confound the scribes and Pharisees. People that had heard Jesus predict his death and the way he would die. And people who had heard him predict his own resurrection, yet they were filled with doubt. That's not how I would have written this story. Probably not you either. That's not how people in the West write stories. We like to write happily ever after stories, right? You get to the end of the story and then there's everything. Magically, all problems disappear. Uh, At the end of, uh, of Western narratives, we have this hope that utopia is possible. That if we are just educated enough, if we just find the right person, that everything is going to work out. It doesn't work that way. And the Bible flies in the face of modern utopia myths. I would just have ended the Gospel of Mark by saying, Jesus was raised from the dead and everybody without a shadow of doubt saw it and believed. That's how it would have written it. Why does the author leave this in the text? And maybe more to the point, why did God choose to reveal himself in this particular way? You know, when in other parts of scripture, God appears to people. Don't you think Jesus could appear to each individual person in this room and say, feel the holes in my hands? Examine me? Don't you think Jesus could do that? Of course he could. Why does he choose to reveal himself through the limitations of language and language written years ago, centuries ago, millennia ago? What are we all doing here if not for these words. But look again at what the Bible actually says. Early in the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And in the first century, 
If you wanted to um, support your argument, you would bring two witnesses, right? Two witnesses would, would be needed. That's a pretty well-known idea, bring a couple of witnesses, corroborating evidence, bring two witnesses. But in the first century, those two witnesses needed to be credible witnesses, and specifically, they needed to be male witnesses. In the first century, a female witness could bear witness in court, but a female's witness was only worth half of a male's witness. Why is it that Jesus chooses to reveal himself through a female and, a, and an incredible female, someone who you could easily point back to her life and say, look at the way she lived. Is this even a credible witness at all? Secondly, you notice, as we mentioned before, in verse 11 and in verse 13, it ends, they did not believe. Faith is not the absence of doubt. These people believed in Jesus. They believed in his miracles. They believed he was the son of God. But you know this juxtaposition is not just in the gospel of Mark. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 and 17. It's not just in light of the fact that they hadn't yet seen him. You see, the gospel writers are honest about the fact that Sometimes what we see and what we know doesn't line up with what we want to believe. Matthew 28, 16, 17 says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed him. When they saw the resurrected Jesus, they worshiped him. That's where I would end the sentence. They saw the resurrected Jesus, they fell down on their knees, and they said, he is risen. We can't wait to go tell the world he is risen. But what is it? what's the next phrase say? It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They're looking at the resurrected Jesus, and they still doubt. In John chapter 20, this is the classic story, the person you maybe first thought of when you thought of a person who should have believed but doubted. We are typically hard on, uh, and, and we're pretty hard, we harshly judge this guy, Thomas. But John chapter 20 says, Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not even with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. All of these witnesses now say, we've seen him. But he said, <laughs> I don't know. If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands or put my finger in the mark of the nails, or put my hand into his side. I will never believe. Hang on a second. Does he say, I will never believe? I know the absolute truth? No. You see, Thomas is in this middle space just like we are. The space of belief says, I don't see it, yet I believe. The space of doubt says, I don't see it, I don't yet believe, but I also don't disbelieve. I don't have enough evidence to say this is absolutely true. Jesus did not raise from the dead. He just said, 
there's a case in which I will believe, and that is if I see the Lord Jesus. I love this. I love this so much. A week later, think about the goodness of God. Jesus made him wait. He made him wait. He made him sit there in his doubt for a week. Don't you think Jesus could could have appeared right then and there? He waited a week. A week later, they were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, I don't know how Jesus did this, something about his glorified body, he appears. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, y'all. Peace be with you. Jesus always said, peace be with you. He had to, he, when you saw the resurrected Jesus, people were often afraid. And then he said to Thomas, think about the gentleness of Jesus for the person who is doubting. The person who said, I will never believe. He gave an ultimatum to God. The audacity of giving the ultimatum to God. And Jesus moves into that space and he says, Thomas, I'm here. Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it on my side. Do not be faithless, but believe. And Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John includes the whole path. These things are written that you might believe. So you go from doubt to belief. And that by believing, there's a, there's a, there's a sequence, there's a progression of belief. By believing, you might have life in his name. So can we question our faith without losing it? Maybe you know someone, or maybe you're in this space right now. Can you question your faith without losing it? The answer is absolutely yes. Is God mad at Thomas for doubting? Does he shame him for doubting? No. He moves in with gentleness. There's a scripture that says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Faith is not the absence of doubt. In fact, if you find yourself in a season of doubt, can I tell you what that's evidence of? That's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moving to you. Moving and inviting you into a space of community. The brackets. What about the brackets? Did you notice the brackets? I want you to think about this. There's a, there's a, a field of study called textual criticism in the Bible. And Jesus-loving scholars are looking at, I mean, spending their life to the disciplines of learning these languages and, and studying archaeological finds. In your Bible, it probably says the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. What does that mean? Well, somewhere around the second century, the Bible began to be mass-produced. 
This technology right here I hold in my hand, this is a technology. This is called a codex. You know that. Christians invented this technology for the benefit of spreading the gospel, for the benefit of spreading scripture. When that began to happen, all these manuscripts were being produced. The lion's share, the overwhelming majority of the texts that you see in Greek of the Gospel of Mark do actually include those verses, Mark 16, 9 through the end of Mark. But do you know that the critics, the scholars, the, the friendly critics and scholars looked at the original, the oldest, we don't know about original, but the oldest manuscripts had recognized actually these verses weren't in there. They weren't in there. Well, what happened? Well, faithful scribes down through the ages, even with the Old Testament, would take uh, and gather both the, um, uh, the, the oral tradition of the faith, things that were written on bowls and scraps, sermons that were being preached, and they would piece it together. So I would just commend this to you. If you're wondering about this specific idea, Bridgetown Church did an interview with Greek scholar Dan Mounts, who, is, who was on the committee of the translation for ESV and NIV. This may be two of you, but it's worth mentioning. There's a, a, an interview called The Extra Ending of the Gospel of Mark. Why was it included? Here's what I love. Don't you know God knew that we would include this? Don't you know that he, would, he, he knew that we would include this in our Bible, in, even though it's not a part of the original canon? Still, it's right there. Now, it's there as a footnote. Why? Why would God do that? Why would he allow so many people to come to Scripture with doubt? It can only be that he's fully comfortable with your doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. The second thing I think we see is the reality of belief, uh, about the reality of belief in this is that faith is based on substance. I think you've all heard of uh, the popular idiom, uh, a leap of faith. Um, do you know how unbiblical this idea is, a leap of faith? There's no such thing as a leap of faith. In the narrative of Scripture, people take steps of faith. God never asks you to take a leap of faith, to jump out into something based on um, um, no past history, no faith, no evidence of God's work. God asks you to take a step of faith. Who asked people to take a leap of faith? Well, Satan asked Jesus to leap off the top of the building. That was a leap of faith. What did Jesus do? He rebuked him. Steps of faith are found all throughout Scripture. Christians get accused of being gullible and turning a blind eye to reality, but that's not faith. Faith is not the same as blind optimism or wishful thinking. Faith is based on something real. Faith is, uh, has actual substance to it. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the reality or some translations say the substance of things hoped for, the proof 
of what is not seen. How can you prove something that's not seen? Science tells you you cannot prove something you cannot see. Scripture says faith is the reality or the substance of the thing that you hope for, the evidence of things not seen. Then in verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. We see here, himself, here that God himself had faith. Do you think God sees reality clearly? Of course he does. But he still acts in faith. In the same way, a person who has faith is acting on something real. Mark wants us to base our belief on the resurrection of Jesus, not just on his witness, not just on the fact that he's giving an eyewitness account from Peter. He wants us to base our faith in the resurrection on multiple accounts. The people that he's mentioning in his narrative, at the time this was written, he's, it's, it's, it's like tagging someone in a photo. You can go look at their profile. You can go check out Mary Magdalene. You can go check out Mary, the mother of Jesus. You can go check out Salome. You can go have an actual conversation with them at the time when this was written. In addition, Mark wants to give you substance for your faith in the resurrection by reminding you that it was predicted by the prophets. So this is an interesting thing. Mark chapter 16, verse 2, just a few verses earlier, starts with this phrase. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. You see, Mark is a literary genius. He's using what he knows about the Old Testament, and he's providing a kind of hyperlink here. What is the hyperlink to? <clears throat> Mark 16, 2 again. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, when they went to the tomb. If you were a Jewish person, or if you were familiar with the Hebrew scripture, this would, have, this would have been like someone quoting a movie quote to you that you, from your favorite movie, or a, line, a lyric from a song that's one of your favorite songs. This would have been something you would have rehearsed in your mind over and over again. What is it? Well, it's a prophecy from the end of the Old Testament, from Malachi chapter four, verse two. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So the people who wrote Mark chapter 16 verse 9 are being faithful to map right back onto Mark chapter 16 verse 2. What does Mark chapter 16 verse 9 say? Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, after he had risen. He appeared to someone that he had healed, someone that he had set free. The third thing that we see is that faith comes from God. If faith is not an absence of doubt, and faith is uh, based on substance, some, something real, where does faith actually come from? Well, Mark chapter 11, verse 22 says, have faith in God. Or the actual Greek uh, has the connotation of have the faith of God. 
Faith itself comes from God. Romans chapter 10, verses uh, 16 and 17, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And it says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith, the faith that you need comes from the God who requires that faith. Paul, a man who was so utterly convinced that the resurrection was not real, has an appearance from the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus shows up to Paul, we think Paul is all the way over here, absolutely convinced, out, so outside of faith that he's murdering Christians. But something happens with Saul, Paul, when he sees Stephen stoned. He sees the way that he dies. Maybe Paul had heard the Roman centurion who saw the way Jesus died. And the way that Jesus died so moved the Roman centurion that he said, surely this man is the son of God. Stephen was so captivated by Jesus, by the resurrected Jesus. Saul saw something in his eyes. And when Jesus appeared to Saul on the road, he wasn't over here in this place of absolute unbelief. Saul was actually in this space of doubt. How do I know? What did Jesus say? He said, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? There's something bothering your conscience. You know that what you're doing is not right, but you're trying to convince yourself that that way of life is right. He becomes so convinced that in Romans chapter 10, he says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith has substance to it. Faith is based on eyewitness accounts. There are several scholars, in fact, attorneys, who have looked back and said, if this were just a case in court, the resurrection of Jesus may be the most provable event in all of antiquity. But just knowing that fact alone does not give you faith. Faith comes from God himself. When I was first born, my parents were not following Jesus. Neither of them. My mom had grown up in the church, and my dad had had a very difficult upbringing. But right about the age of two or three, my parents had a radical conversion 
where they could not deny the love and forgiveness of Jesus. After a lifetime of running from Jesus, both of my parents decided not just to follow Jesus, but to give the rest of their lives to serve him. One day, my dad, who at the time was driving buses, charter buses across the United States, had been praying. He spent the whole trip back and forth praying, and he got home, and he could hardly wait to see me because he had a compelling way to tell four-year-old me, three, four-year-old me, the gospel. He got down on one knee. He presented the gospel in the most simple terms that I could understand. I don't know why, but it clicked. I gave my heart to Jesus. And it was innocent and pure. And of course I trusted my dad. Of course I loved my dad. And I'd like to say that from that moment on, I lived my entire life full of faith, full of a spirit of faith. It was not the case. Andrew, I want to go ahead and invite you to come on up. I spent much of my life, much of my adult life, even as a pastor, back and forth between this space and this space. Belief and doubt. Assurance and questions. Some friends invited me to go climb Crestone Peak in Colorado, one of the hardest 14ers in the state of Colorado. I trained for it, but you can't train enough for a mountain like this. About five hours into this 12, 13-hour day, I had reached my physical limit. It's kind of the point of the whole thing. I began to cry out to God. If I'm honest, I was living fully in this space of doubt. I was helping lead this summit team to the top of the mountain, and yet I had my own doubts. My body begins to break down and I'm crying out to God. I'm, I quoted every verse that could come to mind, and I'm just like running on fumes. And then I remembered an old song, <clears throat> an old hymn. It goes like this. I heard an old, old story about a Savior came from glory. I started singing that song. Was up in front of people and a little, little, little ways away. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his healing and his precious love revealing. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Anybody know this song? Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. I was like, man, I haven't sung that song in how long? And immediately, the God who rescued me out of darkness met me right there in my doubt. And he showed me a picture of me standing as a four-year-old on an old wooden pew 
and an old wooden church and old country town singing at the top of my lungs. Oh, victory in Jesus. And he whispered, do you remember? Do you remember the purity and the innocence of belief? Don't you want that again? Welcome back. Where did that faith come from? That faith came from God. Faith is not the absence of belief. Faith has substance to it. Faith comes from God alone. I don't know where you are in the spectrum of doubt and faith. Or maybe someone in your life is struggling with doubt. Maybe you feel like they are moving away from Jesus. As we worship God together, if only God can give faith, guess what? No one wants to give it more than he does. As we move into this space of worship, I want to invite you. We've got communion. We've got a place to kneel and worship if you like. But would you take your doubts or the doubts of people in your life to Jesus? Be honest about them and trust him that he'll meet you right where you are. Let's worship.